We're thankful this morning to take a little bit of time right here in the middle of the service to welcome Evangeline Sanders, who is not only a member of Gospel Hope Church, uh, she and her husband Joe have been with us uh, for some time now, but she is also the executive director of the Pregnancy Resource Center of Salt Lake City. And we are uh, just really thankful for what that ministry is doing and grateful that God has positioned Evangeline uh, to be one of the key voices in the valley and to be a leader in a really needed ministry. One of the beautiful things about the church that Jesus is building in the world is that he, by his spirit, actually gifts and enables every single member. Now, those gifts are exercised first in the context of the church, and it actually builds us up in his love, and it's an amazing thing to behold. But he's also gifted each of us in order that we might go out from the church because we're not a fortress and we're not a cloister. We actually are in the world, but not of it. And as we use those particular gifts and ability, we bring salt and light into our communities and neighborhoods, into culture itself. Evangeline has been positioned by the Lord to use her unique set of gifts and ability to lead the PRC as they seek to serve families and individuals who are working through unplanned pregnancies. She has much more that she will share with us now, and we'll probably mention this, but I want you to know that there is a display table on the left side of the lobby uh, with PRC resources and information. I know she'll be available after the service this morning and would love to talk to you more about some of the very things that uh, she is going to share in the next few minutes. So Evangeline, will you please come? We're so thankful for you and Joe and praying with you uh, for God's blessing over the PRC. As Pastor Danny had said, um, I work at the Pregnancy Resource Center, um, but prior to that, um, outside of church, I've actually been involved with four different nonprofit ministries over the last nine years. Um, and each of those had a major focus on Christian ethics and how to be sensitively bold um, and be a loving witness in a culture that is increasingly hostile to the things of Christ. And on the flip side, boldly advocating for things that go against the word of God. So before I delve into the great work that the Pregnancy Resource Center does and ways you can get involved, um, I'd love to share with you just a little bit about my background, what I learned um, while I was working and studying in London, um, and just how, how I ultimately developed a fuller understanding of the Christian view of the sanctity of life. Um, there's going to be a lot of content that I try to go through, but um, I did make handouts that if anyone wants, they're at the back, and I can um, give those to you later. And there's also a great amount of data that can be found um, on the topic from the Charlotte Lozier Institute, and they have great um, statistics and ways that um, help us as Christians know that what we're advocating for isn't just true because God says it's true. That's, that's definitely enough. But also all of the data and the statistics also point to the fact that his word is right and it really bears fruit, um, good and bad, in the outworking of people's lives if we don't do what he says. 
So a little bit about my background. Um, I was born in India, but I grew up in England. Um, I was born into a Christian home. Um, and my sister and I were taught um, the things of God. We knew right from wrong. Um, and specifically in, regarding sanctity of life, we knew that um, sex and sexual intercourse was made to be um, happen within marriage. And outside of that, um, that wasn't what God wanted for his children. And so... Um, we were, we were warned, told, you know, as parents do, that an unplanned pregnancy is something you should expect if you're going to go away from what the Lord has asked us to do. Um, and of course, as a young Christian woman who loved the Lord, I knew um, that that was not the path that I would go along. Um, it's not something that I would pursue for myself. But what about those outside of the church? What about those that didn't love the Lord? What about my friends? What about the people in college? Could they um, have sex outside of marriage? Um, what happened if they had unplanned pregnancies? Um, could they have abortions? And I'd say for the majority of my life, um, I was that Christian that knew the convictions for myself um, and the standards that I had for myself and that, the, that my parents had taught me. But I never wanted to impose what I knew to be true um, or even expect non-Christians to live the way that I did. Um, and I'd say that didn't really change um, until two things happened in my early 20s. Um, the first was that I was finally confronted with the brutality and truth of what an abortion is and how harmful it is to women. And secondly, I think I finally truly believed that God's word wasn't just good news for Christians, but it was actually good news for all of humanity, whether they believed in him or not. Now, that flip happened because I attended a week-long um, Worldview conference and was confronted with the staggering number of deaths caused by abortion and the brutal ways um, that abortions are being carried out. Um, my background is that I'm a medical sciences undergraduate. I have a master's in medical ethics and medical law. So medical things are my jam. That's what I like to look into. It's what I like to do. But being a medical science graduate, I was used to siding with a medical establishment. I was used to trusting doctors. I was used to thinking, well, of course, they're going to care for women in the best that they knew how. But here I was at this conference with other Christian doctors, people who were seasoned in their faith that were presenting me with facts and information that really made me question my education. It really made me question the things that we were saying were good for women. And I was just there wrestling with that, like, who do I trust? Who do I trust right now? I have all of these great degrees from all these wonderful establishments that tell me, hey, you have these great letters behind your name that tell you that you should do what we want you to do. And on the flip side, God's telling us something different. Um, and as I was thinking through one of these, one of the founders was a Christian lawyer, and she read the following from Psalm 119, where David writes, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate, it on, I meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all of my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than my elders, for I obey your precepts. And I remember that standing out to me so much of, you know, I have more insight than my teachers. I never wanted to think I had more insight than my teachers. But actually, the word of God is the source of our wisdom. And so we can't think that we can find better wisdom outside of his word. And that was actually a lot of what um, this lawyer had said. She said, it's so easy for us to be swayed on cultural issues, but we must have the word of God as our final authority and to continually look to Christ to help us navigate the, complex, the complexities that are presented to us. And she said this, we must be careful to not think that we can find greater wisdom outside of God's word. And so that's what I did. You know, and while the Bible does not specifically speak on abortion, it does have a lot to say on the important issues surrounding 
it to help us frame our view of the sanctity of human life. So there are a few key verses that I'm going to um, speak through, and again, they are also in the handout too. Um, so it begins right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. And this phrase, the image of God, commonly referred to in the Latin as the Imago Dei, lovely fancy words there, underpin the Christian doctrine of the special honor that God has for his creation that he gave to humans and not to the rest of creation. This foundational doctrine of Christianity is the basis for humanity's understanding of the innate value, dignity, and worth that each human being possesses regardless of race, regardless of their religion, regardless of their socioeconomic background or their physical or mental abilities. And it is this understanding that causes us to value the life of each human being right from the moment of conception through to natural death. And the Bible is of such value to each of us, I'm praying, and to all of humanity as being the word of God, that from it we can begin to comprehend the moral character of God and understand the things that are important to him. We read that God is just and compassionate and that he defends the innocent and protects the helpless. And he urges us to do likewise. Two of those verses I put up is speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, ensure justice for those being crushed. Um, and that just rings so true in this whole um, abortion topic and debate. It also says, learn to do right and to seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And the word of God in revealing to us the heart of God challenges us to see humanity in the way that God sees us. We are to care deeply for those that are made in his image and are not to passively agree with his ways, but actually to actively learn how to express his love to humanity through action. I don't want you to get too caught up on the next figures. I will talk about those soon. Abortion was legalized in the United Kingdom back in 1967, shortly after it was legalized here in the US in 73. Now, I don't have time to give you a full history on abortion, um, and don't worry, there's going to be nothing graphic in this presentation either. Um, but I will tell you that if you are conflicted on what you believe on abortion, it really is worth looking into. It's a very sobering um, reality, and as Christians, um, we should be equipped to learn to not be motivated by feelings or emotions, but primarily by the Word of God and also the truth of what's going on around us. Um, so instead, I'm actually going to fast forward to 1992, which was the year I was born, so you can tell how old I am. Close to 20 years after the abortion debate, um, after the abortion had been legalized, the debate on its morality was still at the forefront. It hadn't gone away in all of that time. And it was during um, the 1992 presidential time that uh, President Clinton had coined the phrase, most people know this, it's safe, legal, and rare. And why was that? It was because there were still so many people that had seen that abortion had been legalized, but inside they still weren't okay with what the procedure was actually um, about. So President Clinton said this to the Congressional Women's Caucus of 92. We have to remind the American people once again that being pro-choice is very different from being pro-abortion. And most people, Christians included, believed that while abortion was generally a terrible thing, it was only being done in a minority of very difficult, complex cases, and it was rare. Now, it's very interesting, because this was at 1992, and if you look 
right behind me um, on this table. This is um, the abortion statistics, which you can find both from the CDC and the Guttmacher Institute. Um, the CDC gets all of their reportings. Um, the centres have to file them. They do sometimes, they don't sometimes, whereas the Guttmacher Institute will actually get in touch with the abortion clinic. So I'd say their numbers are a little bit more accurate than the CDC's numbers. But if we look at this, you can kind of see that it was really just a big lie. According to both the CDC and the Guttmacher Institute's records in the 90s, the same year that the phrase safe, legal and rare were being used, abortions in the US were at an all-time high. And it takes a while to stomach these numbers, and I don't want to just you know, gloss over it, but can you imagine telling someone that a procedure is rare when in reality it's happening 1,608,000 times a year? You know, just let that sink in. That's a million... 608,000 lives that were ended in one year at the same time that we were being told that it was rare. Let's fast forward to 2012. The abortion lobby was no longer content with the term safe, legal and rare. These numbers came out. They couldn't defend rare anymore. Um, the other thing was that they didn't want any stigma associated with abortions anymore. Why should abortions be rare if abortion is healthcare? Why should they be limited? Um, so they dropped rare from the slogan and settled for safe and legal. Are abortions actually safe? Let's keep going. I've put up a few of the common phys um, physical complications that happen post-abortion, um, and you can easily find these on the Charlotte Lozier Institute or in so many other um, legal and medical journals. Um, the work that we do actually deals with a lot of the emotional um, complications as well, but it's good to see um, that safe doesn't really mean what they think it does. So, on the one side, of course, abortions aren't safe if one party in the procedure consistently dies. But in reality, the term safe used in the slogan isn't referring to the baby. It's instead um, referring to the life of the mother and women in general, who abortion proponents would say that unless they had safe access to abortions, their lives would be endangered by the return to backstreet abortions. Yet looking at states that have near-total bans on abortions, um, like Texas and countries like Poland, where abortion numbers drastically dropped after an abortion ban was put in, um, in Poland, the annual abortion number reduced from 150,000 to 1,000 without any increase in maternal deaths. Even so, there is still an undercurrent that states that abortions are as safe as taking Tylenol or penicillin, and is far safer for a woman than going through the risks of natural childbirth. Yet again, looking further, we find this again to be untrue. Um, as I said earlier, the CD's maternal and abortion-related mortality data and just data in general is notoriously incomplete. Um, and such incomplete data does show that there are fewer deaths after abortion than after childbirth. But higher quality international record linkage studies um, actually document the opposite result. When linking all death certificates of reproductive age women of all pregnancy outcomes, studies in both Finland and Denmark, and interestingly, and I found this kind of funny, on California's Medicaid recipient list, they have all documented a much higher likelihood of death in the year following an induced abortion than following term childbirth. Specifically in Finland, deaths from all causes after abortion were two to three times more frequent than after childbirth. The risk of death from any violent cause was six times more likely after abortion than childbirth. Suicides were also six times higher, accidental death five times higher, and death by homicide ten times higher. And I just want to pause there to talk about 
when we speak about abortion rights and we speak about the, the value of the baby, we also want to really make sure that we talk about the value of the mother. And what we have found in the Pregnancy Resource Centre and the work that we do is that increasingly the abortion or the want of the abortion was just the symptom of much greater relational difficulties that were going on. There were lots of other abuse situations, there were um, financial situations, there were so many other things going on. And yet we're told that abortion is a thing that will make everything better, but as we can see it doesn't. It doesn't give the opportunity for something to turn around in the life, and it means that we are abandoning women to go through with something that may actually help them save their life, that instead we're telling them this will help them um, just keep their life as it is. But most of the people that need abortions are not in good situations, they're not in safe situations. The latest data from 2021 also shows that 53% of aborted abortions are now early medication abortions. So they're the, medi uh, the abortions that happen via two pills. Um, and it's really interesting because I had some people that were pro-life that kind of told me, well, aren't you happy that uh, abortions are now happening via the pill and not via surgery? Um, and, and I would agree, yes, you know, medication abortions are generally, and I say generally because this isn't always the case, less gruesome, and they're more likely to occur before pain receptors are uh, being formed in a, in a growing baby. But it's also four times more likely that a woman that has a medical abortion, so taking the pill, will have complications than first trimester surgical abortions. In fact, complications from ectopic pregnancies um, are actually 30% more likely in women that have had um, a medical abortion rather than a chemical abortion. And the reason for this is because with an abortion, it's never pretty. There's cramping, there's pain, there's bleeding, there's all of these things that happen. And so women that may have a, um, ectopic pregnancies um, don't even realise that actually what is happening within them is a cry for help, that their body is in grave danger, and instead they confuse it with just what it should be a regular, what they think is a regular effect of the pill. And this is incredibly dangerous because the FDA actually removed its in-person prescribing requirements in 2021, meaning that women can now receive those two um, medications um, at home via mail, you know, through the internet, and they have not seen a doctor, they have not had an ultrasound to check that the pregnancy is actually where it's supposed to be. And so it's just bad, bad news for everyone involved. Um, just this week, actually, my centre received a call from a woman who had um, taken the pills that she'd ordered online. Um, three and a half weeks later, she was still bleeding. She had no idea if her baby was still living. And it was just, you know, we're just here taking these calls and we're like, well, where's your doctor? I don't have a doctor. I haven't seen a doctor. You haven't seen a doctor? Why? You know, wh what are we doing right now to allow this to happen and to think that this is good for women? But again, I want to say being pro-life doesn't mean that we just care about the life of the baby. It also means that we, that we really need to care about the life of the mother. And that means speaking the truth about what the harms are, not just for the children, but for the mothers as well. So I would probably say that no, um, abortions aren't safe in any stage of pregnancy either. Um, and lastly, is abortion legal? Well, um, yes and no. Growing up in the United Kingdom, I actually never thought I'd be in a place where abortion would be made illegal. Um, just our legal systems work differently and it's just really difficult. But um, while they have an uphill battle in the UK, we now live in a post-Roe America. Um, and I would say that we have an incredible opportunity um, from the Lord to protect the life of the unborn in our state. We have an amazing opportunity to meet women where they're at um, and to show them the love and care of Christ and to help them walk in a way that can lead them to repentance. Um, and more so than that, help them break the generational curse of death um, that seems to be just so pervasive in our culture today. Um, 
Learning all that I did all those years ago means that for me, I could no longer be content privately believing one thing while publicly not speaking out on an issue that is so harmful to my friends. You know, at that age, there were my friends that were having abortions and it wasn't loving for me to be silent. But here are some of the bigger lessons um, that I learned and I hope that it'll be helpful to you too. First, my fear of speaking out on issues such as this was that actually I was really ill-equipped. My lack of knowledge and understanding um, of the widespread impact of abortion, of its true nature and the damage on women, um, was something that I'd actually never heard of before. And I was in the medical field. Um, and that kept me silent. But secondly, I realized it was also my view of God and his knowledge and understanding of human behavior that was poor. I honestly underestimated the pernicious nature of sin and how it weaves webs of destruction wherever it is. Somehow I thought I could outlove God. I knew things for myself, but I was like, oh no, but maybe it's not loving to do that. But God is love, and his word is truth. He frequently warns us of the fallout of sin precisely because he loves us and he cares for us. And if we say that we love our friends, and we love our families, and we love our neighbors, we have to pray that the Lord will equip us and give us courage to warn those that are quite literally being led to the slaughterhouse. It says in Proverbs 24, 11, rescue those that are being taken away to death, hold back those who are slumbling to the slaughter. And if you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? And that just really, you know, one convicted me, but also just gave me courage that the work that we're doing, the ways that we are sharing the good news in every area, this is good. This is just really good news. It really is good news. And we have to ask the Lord to help us be bold to share it. And lastly, I would say um, the word of God truly brings life and his ways are better for everyone. Um, and in the last nine years of working in this area, there has not been one case, one case that I've come across where I would say that abortion would have been a better solution. Not one. And there have been difficult cases, but every single time when someone has chosen life, it has been a catalyst for change in their family. Change that actually we pray would happen in lots of Christians' lives, but it happens in non-Christians' lives when they come to a crux where they're like, I don't know what to do. And what an opportunity for us to Christians to meet them there and point them to a better way. So um, where does that leave us today? Currently, Utah still permits elective abortions up to 18 weeks, um, but that could all change very quickly. Um, depending on how things go in our legal courts. Um, and while there are many that are frustrated with the current injunction, I understand why. I'm just choosing to trust the Lord's timing in all of this. Maybe this is his mercy and his delay to give us all a wake-up call to prepare us for what we need to do for the influx of women that will be very confused if um, abortions abandon our state. And that's where um, I would say the wonderful work of the Pregnancy Resource Centre comes in. Um, I've put our mission statement up there. You'll see that we really do believe that all life has value. Um, and so we exist to um, equip men and women to make God-honoring choices. Um, we do that by providing uh, personalized consultations. This is when we're in the room with a woman and we are learning what's going on in her, um, in her situation. We'll sensitively talk her through all of her abortion options um, or pregnancy options. And, um, and then also we are always praying for an opportunity to share the gospel with her. Um, they're in a very sensitive period in their life where um, we would say when, when trauma, when, when things that don't go your way come about, you just 
get afraid and you want to find the easiest way out. And what we try to do is to help everyone so you can breathe and we're here to support you. Let's quietly and um, softly speak you through all of the options that you have in front of you and let you know that none of your pregnancy options will go away if you wait another week, if you wait two weeks. It's okay, you can breathe and we want to invite them back in week after week to get to know them, to follow up with them and to help them get away from what we call lizard brain where all you want to do is fight or flight and actually start thinking through what are my goals and ambitions for the rest of my life? How would the decision that I make today impact the rest um, of my, and my future? Um, and one of the things that's really interesting is that 68%, sorry, 86, let's get that right, 86% of the women that have abortions are actually unmarried. And so too many times we hear our clients say things like, no one ever told me that this is what it would be like. You know, we thought we couldn't get pregnant. We had sex by accident. And too many don't know the good plan for sexual integrity, nor the dangers of sex outside of marriage. And like always, sin begets more sin. But we know that abortion is not neutral. Not only does it intentionally deprive an irreplaceable, unique bearer of the image of God from carrying out their divine purpose that has been given by their creator, it also leaves women um, and men wounded by the guilt and shame of an act that they were told would make everything better. And as a church, we can do better. I know we can. We can lovingly come alongside a young woman and let her know that she is not alone. And while the enemy will want her to hide and cover up her sin with more sin, we can show her a better way, a path that leads to forgiveness and redemption, and one that ultimately leads to life, not just for her baby, but for herself also. So how can you um, get involved with the work of the PRC? Um, firstly, you can pray. Um, I know, and I know that you all know, this is a spiritual battle more so than it is a physical battle, and the work that we are doing is not something that Satan likes. Um, and the amazing opportunities that we have here in the state with, with um, some of the protections that are coming in, I think mean that we're just going to be an even greater target. So I would love you to pray for, um, for me as I lead the staff, but also for my team, um, for the advocates especially that are in the room with the women. We need wisdom from the Lord. Um, sometimes we don't know what to say, but we pray that the Holy Spirit will guide us. Um, and if you'd like to find out more about the work that we do and how to pray for us intentionally, you can sign up for our newsletter. Um, secondly, you can volunteer. Um, we have 14 members of staff right now, um, and we just are in such need of volunteers. We really need about 50. Um, so right now we're about 20. We're really trying to expand that. But there are so many ways that you can volunteer at the center. Um, currently, we are in need of bilingual volunteers. So if anyone is Spanish-speaking, we'd love to have you there. But we're also in need of parenting mentors, both men and women. We realize um, that abortion isn't going to not be necessary. It isn't going to be something that women think they don't need unless they have the support and know um, how to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord. And the best way for us to do that is to come alongside young parents and to help them know that they are not alone and to be like, this is normal parenting struggles. Maybe this stuff isn't so normal. Let's work through those. So if you um, have the heart to do that, please come and see me at the table. I'd love to um, talk to you about that. And lastly, um, we are a volunteer, uh, sorry, a donation-driven organization. So everything that we do, we do free of charge to um, all of our clients. We don't want them to um, not come and get life-saving help because they don't have insurance or they don't have any money. So we offer all of our services free of charge. And so if you um, don't have time to volunteer, but you still want to uh, get involved, then um, you can definitely give. We would appreciate all of that. 
Um, so that's all that I have for you today, but I just wanted to end with, um, this topic is so important to the heart of God um, and to me. And if there are some of you that are just like, I just want to know more and I want to know how to speak on these um, issues or I don't know how to deal with this, I'd love to connect with you after the service um, and speak to you about this a little bit more then. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Very well done. Yeah, that was great. That was great. Why don't we pray right now uh, for the PRC, just for the work of the Spirit to descend on the state that we love and our communities and just to bring life. Let's pray. Father, as we consider both what has transpired over the last half century, what is taking place even today, we realize there is much to mourn and much to seek mercy for. And yet you are the God who is abundant in mercy, the thing that we need. Thank you that you are slow to wrath. Thank you that you are a God of forgiveness, a God of restoration. And we know that the work is far beyond what we are capable of. It's far beyond the resources of time, of money that we possess, and yet we come to you because you are not lacking for time or energy. The wealth of the nations of the entire universe is yours. And we ask that you would continue to build this resource center and that you would assemble a team from churches just like Gospel Hope who would show the love of Christ, who would speak the good news as Evangeline has so eloquently challenged us uh, to think on this morning. That you would put boldness into our hearts and creativity and wisdom and deep love. Show us what our part should be. And as we seek to honor you and protect life, to bless those who feel so traumatized even, who feel so stressed by an unplanned pregnancy, oh Lord God, meet them today in that dark and shadowy moment. We thank you for what you have done and thank you that so many here uh, have found mercy and have found forgiveness, have found hope, as they too have struggled through dark periods of life. Would you just lead us now? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, how would you know that Jesus loves you, particularly if you've made a painful decision such as Evangeline was just uh, noting. Some of you have walked that dark road or you've been shoulder to shoulder with somebody and you say, well, you know, choosing to end my baby's life wasn't my choice, but some of you bear deep, dark shame and guilt and fear because of other 
really difficult choices you made. And perhaps like so many in these unplanned pregnancies, you knew at the moment you were choosing the lesser of two evils, but you saw no other alternative. How would you know that Jesus could love someone like you? Well, right in Luke 3, as we've been studying, we actually find the answer. It's so easy to sanitize and even sterilize the gospel story, to just reduce it to a set of propositional truths about who Jesus is, what he has done for us, what he will do, what he has promised. But the gospel is not simply a set of propositional truths. Oh, there's a place for that. But Jesus is so much more than the incarnation of propositional truth. And the gospel, the good news itself, is so much more than a list of spiritual ingredients. And so I want to encourage you, don't turn the gospel into a list of ingredients like you found on the side of your box of Lucky Charms this morning. You say, oh, they're magically delicious. The gospel is magically delicious. No, it, it's actually far more than that. And it's not, it's not just simply a, a Christianized lucky charm that we're offering to people. It's a person. And he is spectacularly glorious. He's surprisingly near. Now we know, and this is part of where we began in the gospel of Luke before Christmas, that the living God has come in flesh. We also are learning that he is the eternal son. He has no beginning and he has no end. He's always been the son. But in real time, he actually entered this world that he created, made like we are made, although miraculously conceived, made what we are so that he might deliver us from the horrors of all kinds of sin. I wonder if you've ever looked at your family tree. I've spoken of this on a couple of other occasions, uh, but if you take a look at your family tree, you might discover things that are exciting and some that you would say, "Mm, you know, we we don't want to talk about that. I've mentioned before that my dad's late brother did extensive research into the Brooks tree, and there are some interesting branches and limbs behind us, a few dark ones and a couple of noteworthy ones, but mostly it's just ordinary, obscure people. And we're not a line of powerful leaders or influential personalities. It's mostly farmers and working-class people. There is a blacksmith who served in George Washington's army long ago, and we are related, as I shared before. There's, a, there's actually a shared grandfather way back when with Abraham Lincoln. Now, the Lincoln branch, you know, went a different direction, but we can still go, oh, Grandpa Abraham Hanks. Um, we all own him. But, but mostly our people are just ordinary people, but they are my people. And the genealogies in the Bible remind us not only that history is about real people, but it's actually the story of One family, the human race. We sometimes use that term inaccurately when we refer to the multiple races of earth. There's really only one race. It's the human race. Even the book of Acts says we're all made from one blood. Now, there are different ethnic expressions of that race and different varieties, if you will, and that just speaks to the wonder and marvel of our creator. But the human race is one. 
generation by generation, people come together to marry, to bear uh, children, to establish households and build communities, to birth civilizations and advance the human race. And sin has made a mess of this human race. Families fracture. Family trees are totally splintered. Households are disrupted. And civilizations have even crumbled because of sin. And to go back to a term that we heard John the Baptist using in the earlier portion of Luke 3 last week, we're actually all children of poisonous snakes. Not very flattering. But here at the end of Luke 3, Luke includes a genealogy of Jesus not only to establish his direct descent from King David as Israel's rightful king, but he actually takes it all the way back to Adam to show that Jesus is connected to all of us. He's one of us. He's descended from a long line of people that includes both kings and scoundrels, the famous and the infamous, the obscure and the unknown, but all of them born in sin under the power of the curse spoken before Adam and Eve so long ago, all of them in the grip of death itself. Next week, we're planning to sing creation's song. What did I do with my, here we go. Creation sings the Father's song, and in the second stanza, there's, there's a wonderful line, and I want to just go ahead and prepare you to sing this with all your heart next week, but this is beautiful. A second Adam walked the earth whose blameless life would break the curse. What curse? The curse spoken in Genesis 3, 14 and 15, and it goes on from there to say, whose death would set us free to live with him eternally. Well, there was no real active hope of that apart from Christ. And there's not today. But Jesus did something remarkable. And it's the answer to the question, how can I know that Jesus loves me? Well, you can know that in the first place because he actually came and stood alongside the very ones who were both sinner and sinned against. You say, how would you know that? Well, look at Luke 3. Uh, that's page 859 if you're using one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you. Because here at this very point where John, the, the prophet John, John the Baptist as we know him, has been predicting the arrival of Jesus, Jesus actually makes his appearance. And I want you to look at verse 21 with me as we take a little closer look. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my, my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now two big thoughts from this particular passage. First of all, we know that Jesus has come in flesh, but we are seeing him actively take his place alongside sinners. The question arises, why was Jesus baptized? Now, if you read Matthew's gospel, he actually fills in a little different blank on that, fulfilling all righteousness. Jesus himself said it. But Luke doesn't record that bit of conversation between Jesus and John the Baptist. No, he, he actually highlights something else. And that is that when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized, then the heavens are open. What's going on here? He's actually identifying with people like you and me. He's identifying with us in the weakness of our humanity. Or as Isaiah 53 verse 12 says, he is numbered with transgressors, counted in the big crowd. 
Now, in the immediate context, just to review uh, some things from last week, remember the crowd that John the Baptist has been preaching to uh, is characterized by a selfishness that they need to repent of because he says, do, the, uh, do those things. The fruits of repentance would include giving your stuff away, giving your food away, sharing your resources with people who have need rather than shutting up your heart in selfishness. And remember the tax collector tax collectors come to him and say, what should we do? And he says to them, collect only the taxes that you're authorized to collect. Stop exploiting the people and stealing from them. That's the fruit of repentance. And then the soldiers come. What should we do? And John says to them, well, you should stop using your authority to manipulate and falsely accuse people and be content with what the government pays you. It's that very crowd that Jesus comes and, and, and immerses himself and stands alongside them and is baptized. Not because he's guilty of sin as they were guilty of, but because it's his purpose to identify and be identified with sinners. In just a few more chapters, we're going to come to Luke 7, th- uh, 34, where the, the scribes and Pharisees actually accuse him the son of man of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see, these are the powerful truths of the gospel that assure us Jesus does in fact love us, is not threatened to be identified with us in our weakness and even our sinfulness. The ultimate act of this is that he will go to the cross as if he himself were guilty, though he is sinless and blameless, and take the punishment for our sins on himself. He's one of us. He really does love us. But press on in this passage with me, if you will, please. And notice, second of all, Jesus is one of a kind. There's no one else like him. Look at verse 22. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Luke is the only gospel writer to include the report in bodily form. It's a pointed reminder that the Holy Spirit is present on the earth for the blessing and benefit of Jesus, certainly, but also to begin this ministry whereby Jesus will baptize sinful people in the Spirit and in fire. I found the words of of Daryl Bach in his commentary immensely helpful as, as we consider that he is the anointed one. Let me go back. You're going to read that. Um, He writes of this moment that Christ's participation in the rite of baptism indicates his readiness to take up humanity's cause in salvation. And here begins the realization of what John preached, the opportunity for the forgiveness of sins. John baptizes in water to picture the cleansing, but Jesus brings the Spirit to wash away sin, to bring God's presence into people's lives, and to guide them into the way of peace. This hope is why the Spirit descends on Jesus. And God both endorses Jesus and pictures the enabling presence that comes in and through him. It's what Isaiah 61 speaks of so eloquently. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And the me in this passage is Messiah. It's prophetic of of Jesus himself. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. 
That's what's happening here in the, in the baptism. And then I've taken the next couple of verses and kind of broken them out into the individual bullet points that you could see the work that Jesus was anointed for. And this is the powerful assurance, beloved, that he really did come to rescue people who gave in to the cultural pressure to abort a baby or to commit other sins in defiance of God's authority or to just live ignorantly of who God is and stumble their way into really dark and difficult things. God has not abandoned you. And he was anointed. Look at, look at this string of, of works that he's been anointed for to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year or the season of the Lord's favor. This, beloved, this is exactly what Jesus uh, is going to do. He's even gonna quote this as he enters a, the Nazareth synagogue on a Sabbath day uh, in the very next chapter of Luke's gospel. It goes on though, Isaiah 61 says, to comfort all who mourn. And then I love what begins in verse three, to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. You know, a sign of mourning in the Old Testament was that you would dump ashes on your head to show that you were sorrowful over something. And Messiah shows up to say, can I trade the ashes, the symbol of your deep soul's mourning over your sin, and here's what I'm gonna trade you for. You give me the ashes, I give you the beautiful headdress. Some of you through the years have just continued to dump ashes on your head over all kinds of sin. And Messiah comes and says, can we trade? Stop living in a state of perpetual sorrow. Stop dressing and acting like you are just a lost cause. You are not a lost cause. The Savior has come. Isaiah continues, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And then look at this, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. That is a massive renovation of a family tree that has been shot to hell. And I say that intentionally. Oaks of righteousness? A family tree full of scoundrels and sinners and rebels? Absolutely. That's the power of Christ's presence and the power of his love. And he's anointed by the Spirit to do this. Second big thought. Look at the end of verse 22. The voice comes from heaven. And and. For, for those of you who really like to dig into the Greek and all that, this is the main verb. It's the main point. And what does the voice say? You are my beloved son. With you I'm well pleased. Well, he's not just loved by the Father, but these terms that God uses show us he's the uniquely loved one. There really is no one else like Jesus. Now, a little preview, what's powerful is that in time, because of what Jesus is and does, God will begin to use that same terminology for sinners like us who've been converted and adopted and are, are justified and are being sanctified. It's amazing. But for this moment, he's actually identifying this individual as the one-of-a-kind son. The second thing that you find the Lord saying here is, with whom I am well-pleased. This is the son who I take full pleasure and delight in. This is the affirmation of the, of the father's eternal approval and affection. Another author writes, 
Jesus is unlike us in that while we are here because in their current state, because of a fall in disobedience, he is here at this moment because of a descent in obedience. It's Philippians 2. And the Father takes perfect delight in the Son. Always has. From eternity past, deep into the eternity yet to come, this is the Son in whom he perfectly delights. You know, at this moment, Jesus hasn't preached one sermon. He hasn't performed one miracle. He has not yet even approached Jerusalem or the cross. He hasn't laid down his life and sacrifice for people across time. Yet the Father has a perfect delight in this Son and loves him. It's difficult for us to fathom the pure delight God the Father has in God the Son, but he does. Sometimes we get a little glimpse of it here in these earthly moments, don't we? One of the great joys of becoming grandparents is the kind of conversations you have with your kids who are bringing those babies into the world. And my son Luke and I had one not too long ago where he's like, Dad, it's just awesome. And I said, it is, isn't it? And he goes, I, there's like this whole new love that's emerged in my heart. I mean, I loved Emily when I married her, but this, this little boy that has entered our home, like I love him in a way that I've never loved anybody or anything. I'm like, you're a dad. At our best moments, that's but a dim reflection of the perfect joy and delight and love God the Father has in God the Son. And this word of affirmation is given not only for our benefit. Again, God's not like showing us on the side of the cereal box, oh, th- these are the ingredients of the go- gospel and you know, here's, here's a, a really important truth that you need to make sure you believe. No, he, he's actually doing, I think, two things. Yes, he's revealing truth about his son for us, but I also believe he is speaking audibly uh, to his son as he begins his earthly ministry because in the very next chapter, who's Jesus gonna go toe-to-toe with? The devil himself. It's more than a grand introduction. It is a grand affirmation of a father's love for his son who is now about to walk the earth and through his blameless life reverse the curse. Jesus Christ begins his ministry with the full anointing of God the Spirit and the perfect approval of God the Father. And his victory over the devil's temptation in chapter 4 and his exorcisms of demonic powers in the chapters to come will be the pleasure of his Father. The healings that he will perform from the Sea of Galilee all the way into Jerusalem will bring this Father perfect delight. The sermons he is about to preach will be the perfect joy of the Father and his agony in Gethsemane and the shame of his trial and the suffering of his scourging will not only fulfill the Father's will but they will be the Father's delight. And in that future moment of sacrifice and death on Calvary's cross, Jesus will not only take the sins of the world on his sinless shoulders, but will also be made sin for us in order that he might be made, in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And in it all, God delights in the Son. There's never been a love like this. But again, the work will result in God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit sharing this awesome love with people like us. 
There's a last thought, closing minutes here. So it brings us again to this point. Jesus is the promised one. Look at verse 23. When he began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age, being the son, as, as was supposed, of Joseph. And then we plunge into a long genealogy. And if you want to go through and count it, I think it, this is accurate, that there are 57 names in this list. I would have taken time, maybe, to read through this. Uh, you can do that on your own. But what I want you to note is as you come to verse 38 and, and this genealogy wraps up, this is a descendant of Adam who himself was of God. And by the way, the terms the son don't appear in the original. That's true and it's accurate, but that's just for our help as we read it and process it in English. This is the son of God and the son of Adam. And here, here are three scriptures that you need to keep in mind. Do you remember the promise that God made? We did a little brief survey of Genesis, man, what, a year ago. And we came to Genesis 3.15 after God has confronted Adam and Eve for their sin and rebellion. He begins to speak, first of all, to the serpent. And he says to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And so since that very moment, the, the, the human race has been looking for this promised son. And part of what Luke is doing is making sure we connect the right dots here to say, this is the one. But then you come to the New Testament and you see Paul, who, remember, was the traveling companion of Luke through multiple missionary journeys. Can't help but wonder again if Luke and Paul discussed some of these things late into the night uh, when they were traveling around doing the work of God. But you come to 1 Corinthians 15, and in verse 22, Paul recounts that as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You know, a lot of us are, are mildly irritated, if not just generally put out with Adam right? Perfect man, perfect location, perfect world. He blows it. Yeah, he blew it big time. And all of us died in that sin. But Paul goes on in that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, to say, thus it is written, and he's quoting from Genesis 2, 7, the first man, Adam, became a living being. That's when God breathed into the breath of life. But now listen to this terminology. The last Adam, and he's speaking of Christ, became a life-giving spirit, and he's arrived and he's aligned himself with a whole crowd of sinners saying, I'm going to be baptized just like John has called you to be baptized, not because there's sin in me, but because I want you to be assured that in my life and in my ministry and in a death we haven't even talked about yet, I will rescue you forever. Your sins will be completely forgiven. And whereas John baptizes you with water, a symbol of cleansing, the Spirit himself is about to fall and he will immerse you in this marvelous forgiveness of God the Father that comes through my life and death alone. And that's why there's hope at the Pregnancy Resource Center. And that's why there's hope for you in hard conversations with family or friends. That's why there's hope for us when we gather on a Wednesday night to pray and plead the promises of God because in Jesus, as Paul says later in the New Testament, all of those promises are yes and amen. Oh, it's a marvelous thing that Jesus is doing. What a redeemer, what a king, what a son he is. He is the one who humbly takes his place among the sinful human race as one of us, though not sinful like us. He's the one who is powerfully anointed by God the Spirit for ministry to sin-broken, sin-enslaved people like us. And he is the one who is uniquely loved and approved by God the Father 
that he might in truth, in time and space, crush the head of our greatest adversary and restore us to relationship with God. What a savior, what a king, what a gospel. Let's pray. Father, we need the assurance that you are with us. But thank you that you have not simply come that we might be comfortable in our sin or be pacified in in our wrong thinking and living, but that we might be wholly rescued and transformed. Would you do that mighty work here today and would you bring assurance to this dear assembly that the love of God the Father that overflowed in God the Son is the same love that overflows from Calvary's cross and from the empty tomb. Jesus is everything that we have ever needed and wanted. And we pray that on this day, you would bring our hearts into the sweet submission of faith, that we would serve you joyfully, that we would seek you eagerly, that we would know your abiding presence. Oh, Lord God, pour out your spirit upon us afresh in this day. We need you. We need you alone. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.